Chapter 3, Another Wife In those days, people were called on to make all kinds of sacrifices. I've talked about some of them, but I think a more difficult one was yet to come. Aunt Jane told me many years ago that she had heard her father and mother talking one night. She couldn't make out what they were talking about, but she did hear her mother say, Yes, Lem, you can take another, but not M.A. Later, Jane knew what it was all about. Grandfather had been asked to take another wife, and I'm sure grandmother helped him pick one out. I don't think one of the family ever thought he could have done better. He married Soraya Louisa Chamberlain in October 1866 in the Endowment House, Salt Lake City. They were married by Apostle Wilford Woodruff. Grandmother told one of her daughters that she cried and prayed all night when grandfather rode away with Louisa to get married, but she never cried again. She had prayed for faith and strength and patience and understanding, and she was blessed greatly and comforted. Her father in heaven heard and answered her prayers. For twenty years they lived side by side, under one roof, but in different apartments. They shared all the responsibilities of their homes and families, and I'm sure that grandmother herself guided that cooperation. However, during the first four years before that, they didn't have separate apartments. They were located still in the little adobe house, and it must have been crowded. The two women were used to one another. Louisa had worked in the home before and helped grandmother during sickness and busy times, and they knew one another pretty well. Also, the children knew her and were used to having her in the home. Grandmother had six children by then, Lemuel, ten, Jane, eight, John, seven, William, five, Monroe, three, and Caroline, a little over six months. I've already noted how Luke, grandfather's former slave, liked to be close to the family. Well, he even wanted to make Louisa feel welcome, I guess. He was living in New Harmony. Maybe he had a shack nearby. Aunt Macy had told me her mother was making mush, probably cornmeal mush, for the family one evening. There were about ten in the family then, so it would be a big kettleful. Louisa was stirring it with a big wooden spoon when Luke came up beside her and put his arm around her. Quick as scat, she whammed him in the face with her spoon of hot mush. He didn't bother her any more after that. In 1866-1867, the Southern Division of the Militia trained east of New Harmony under Brigadier General Erastus Snow and Captain James Andrus. The dry-filled ditch in New Harmony was made by the men at that time and used for their water. The flat was covered with tents, and many men took part in sham battles. About that time, they had the Black Hawk War, and Grandfather, who had trained out on the flat with the others, went with Captain Andrus of St. George out to Green River to ascertain the enemy plans. From Indian Depredations in Utah by Peter Gottfordson. Page 221, I take. A company of 61 men from St. George and surrounding settlements were ordered out by General Erastus Snow as a minute company which expected to go as far as Green River. The men from different places met at Gould's Ranch in Washington County, 26 miles east of St. George, on the 16th of August, 1866. They were inspected by General Snow and staff. General Snow told the boys that if those who were called, would obey their officers, all would be well with them. If any of them had been hired to go, they might return home. Continuing the journey from Gold's Ranch, August the 18th, the men made their first camp on Short Creek, where they saw a herd of wild cattle. Captain James Andrus, who was in command, detailed six men to go after the cattle and drive them to Pipe Springs or Whitmore's Ranch. The company went on to the same place, and that evening the detail brought in the cattle. The horses of those driving the cattle being well-nigh exhausted, Ten or fifteen men were sent out to help them and drive the cattle into the Whitemore Corral. An old cow that had been tame refused to go into the corral and made an effort to fight the men and horses. Finally, they had to push her along, but she was shot several times before reaching the corral. Captain Andrus killed and dressed the cow and three other animals. 
We stopped there two days and jerked the meat, which is done by cutting the meat into strips and hanging it on a platform made of willows and building a fire under it, the fire helping the sun to dry it. On Tuesday the 21st, we mustered in one captain, one first lieutenant, one bugler, four second lieutenants, and 35 privates equipped with good long-range rifles and revolvers, and we were later reinforced by Lieutenant Joseph Fish with 18 men from Parowan in Iron County, who left there on this 22nd of August. Next day brought us to Shudampa, where it rained on us all night. The next day's journey brought us to Pare. We went up the fork of the Pare and through Potato Valley, now Escalante. Here we gathered some wild potatoes, which we cooked and ate them. They were somewhat like the cultivated potato, but smaller. From there we went through Rabbit Valley, crossed Dirty Devil Creek, also called Fremont River, and got within sight of Green River. We then turned back, the country between us and the river being too rough and broken to proceed further. Black Hawk told Mr. Adams later, at the time of the treaty, that when the men turned away, they were within three miles of his, Black Hawk's, main camp and the stock, that he and his warriors were in San Pete, that there were only old men and squaws left in camp. When we started back, we made a dry camp. We traveled all the next day and made another dry camp. Some of our horses giving out, six men were sent back after them on foot, expecting to catch the horses and ride them back. The horses, however, were rested and would not be caught. Consequently, the men had to carry their overcoats and guns and walk and drive the horses. It was a rough experience. The company now went down the east fork of the Severe River and passed through Circleville, which had been abandoned in the spring after the crops had been put in. The grain was ripe and looked fine. We turned our horses into a field of oats, which was enclosed by a fence. From there, we went up the canyon westward and through Bear Valley, where we killed some wild chickens. The following day, we continued the journey to Parowan, where we were entertained with a dance arranged in our honor. Next day, we continued the journey to Cedar City, where we were well cared for, and there we went to our respective homes. We were gone from home 60 days, to the best of my memory. This was reported by John S. Adams of Annabella, who was on this expedition. They had several skirmishes with the Indians, and of course, other difficulties. One man was killed, and they lost a horse, both killed by the Indians. On page 225 were listed in the 4th platoon Lemuel H. Red and Francis Prince of New Harmony. On the 9th of March, 1905, the legislature pressed a bill awarding medals to the Indian War veterans. Grandfather received one of these, an act to give them pensions passed the legislature and was to take effect on the approval March 2, 1917. That was too late for Grandfather to benefit by it. Grandfather took an active part in all the wars in Utah since then, I remember when he put in an application for the pension for his services in these wars. A monument on Dryfield was dedicated in their honor by the Daughters of the Utah Pioneers on December 10, 1940. Lemuel H. Red was marshaled the day during the July 4th celebration in 1867. Donations were asked for the Pioneer Immigration Fund in 1868, and he donated $40 for it. In 1863, the settlers built a log meeting house, which they used for about 10 years. In about 1873, they built a small white frame meeting house. I presume it was in the same place it was the log house. This frame house was on the only corner in town where four occupied corners met. It served the members of the ward until the present church was built in 1953, and Alice Red Rich wrote about the first frame meeting house. In our one-room school, the pupils ranged from beginners to the first, second, third, fourth, and fifth readers. We were arranged with the boys on one side of the room and the girls on the other, two in a seat in heavy homemade desks. 
In the center of the room was the big iron wood-burning stove that heated the area nearby, but the corners were cold. The pipe went up through the ceiling and the roof. At least twice I recall the shingles caught fire. One time Wayne Red climbed a ladder and put out the blaze with a bucket of water. Another time Jim Neagle was the hero fireman. Sometimes on Friday afternoon, for a special treat, the whole room of pupils would line up on opposite sides of the room and have a spelling match, going from the youngest to the oldest. What a thrill it was to be among the last to be spelled down. This house served as a schoolhouse, meeting house, dance hall, and for all public gatherings for nearly the next century. Through all my years of remembering, it stands as a central pivot of public activity. There we met for school. Sunday school, sacrament meetings, little dances, adult dances, weddings, funerals, rallies, and all public gatherings. The memories that cling around the place are ever sweet and dear to me. All of grandmother's children and many of Aunt Louise's went to the little frame, one-room schoolhouse. Grandfather and grandmother were believers in giving their children an education. Uncle Lem went one year to the University of Utah. Uncle John went one year to Brigham Young Academy. Father William A. Red went to St. George. Nell Hatch says grandfather taught a year. Nine of grandmother's children taught school. Aunt Alice Red Rich went back to New Harmony once for a visit after being away for many years and wrote about the school there. The one-room school. The years rolled back. I paused to see the one-room school, and there in reverie, I rested in the cool, remote recess among the locust trees, the quietness. Around the old schoolyard unlocked for me, a treasure trove of cadent memory. The frayed rope of the bell hung from the tower. Above the door its ring told the hour. Of morning, noon, and close of recess time, I listened for its sweet, familiar chime. The shallow stream, now choked with mint and sedge, lured my thirsty lips to seek its edge, and again to drink, then with alacrity, returned to book with keen intensity. To glean from the meager store some wisdom there, like sifted wheat is garnered from the tear. That one-room school is like a shrine to me, a lucid trumpeter of prophecy. With joy its reminiscent worth endears, embroidered childhood stories through the years. On hallowed ground it stands a fruitful bough, beside the wall with laden branches now. And sanguine verities of priceless worth, they strew as leaves through strength upon the earth. Another time Anne Alice wrote, in quiet confidence, you have stood as a symbol of faith and loyalty since first your doors were open for classwork. Your length of days has spanned the time since dauntless pioneers pushed back the wilderness and brought waste places into needed productiveness. Within your plain four walls, young dreams have flowered, and boys and girls have grown tall and fair, fired with ambition and desire to move ahead and add their strength and uplift to the onward march of progress, at home and far beyond the narrow boundaries of the little town. Today you are a far cry from the modern school in architecture, lighting, heating, and in general efficiency. But what you lacked in these you made up in closeness of purpose and a desire to help. I recall the days when I warmed myself at your old black stove, sat in high wooden desk, and recited lessons at the teacher's table and copied from memory on my slate the multiplication tables. A feeling of gratitude comes to me and enfolds me like a warming shawl, Again I feel the security and love that was mine in your friendly atmosphere. Today your doors are closed, and the village children are transported to the larger centers of learning. But neither time nor change can dim nor alter the warmth, the trust, the neighborliness that holds my deeply planted roots there. Tender and enduring are my memories of you, dear outmoded one-room school. 
I started school there myself, but as a beginner, I didn't have the privilege of sitting in one of those desks. They were too big for me, or they didn't have enough. We little ones first sat on one long, low bench, no desk, side by side, and we were not to talk to each other. If we did, we were wrapped on the head with the teacher's stick, called a pointer. A monument was erected and dedicated September 26, 1960, by the local daughters of the Utah Pioneers on the site where the Frame Church stood. This is just north of the present church, on the same corner. Aunt Jane writes, To see John D. Lee come in the back door one night to be met by Pap, and for the two of them to seat themselves at the table and enter into earnest conversation, though no questions were asked, Mother finally whispered to us, Pap's buying the John D. Lee farm. A new home. On Wednesday, September 17, 1870, Grandfather bought the farm of John D. Lee for $4,500. $3,000 to be paid in horn stock. $1,500 in weed at tithing prices in yearly payments of $500 per year. It was some distance south and west of the town proper, and there were two houses on it, or rather parts of two houses. The house the Reds later moved into was unfinished. I've always been of the impression that the other house, which was frame, was the one that Lee and his families lived in, and that here in this frame house was the hall where they held their meetings. The yard where this frame house stood is always hereafter called the frame yard. Grandfather tore down the frame house and used the lumber to finish the other, which was of brick. He made it into which was called a duplex. I'll bet it was heaven for those two women to each have a home of her own. The house faced east, and each wife had a front door opening onto the front porch, which was as long as the house. There was an upper porch, and the house was a story and a half high. And Alice described the rooms of their home to me. They had a great big kitchen, the biggest room in the house. That's where the family lived and worked. The back door came in from the porch on the west. This door was a little north of the center of the room. As you came in from the porch, to your right was a long bench, holding the wash basin and two buckets of water, with a dipper under a window. Next to that in the corner, southwest, was the cook stove, the one grandmother had in her other house, and on the south next to the stove was the wood box. They attempted to keep the box filled with lengths of wood for the stove and fireplace, which came in the middle of the south wall. Then came the window, and in the corner against the south wall they put the organ, a little low organ. I thought we had that organ, but Aunt Luella said that Father brought our organ before Grandmother died, and we both had organs. Grandfather couldn't read notes, but he could chord for songs by ear. A man named Cragen, as I remember, came and showed him how to chord. They often stood around the organ and sang all the songs they knew. This was the first organ brought to New Harmony. When Grandfather died, Father sold the organ to Grant's. Along the east wall of the kitchen was a long couch or lounge that would seat half a dozen people. I think it's the one we had in our front room down there. It would pull out for a full-size bed in time of need. Then came the door that led into the front room, where special visitors were brought in at the front door. North of this door in the kitchen, Grandmother would put her sewing machine. In the north wall was the door that led to the upstairs and the dark room. In the middle of the north wall they put the table, when not in use, it was a drop-leaf extension table to accommodate large or small groups. Next to that was the buttery or pantry. North of the outside door from the porch was a window and a mirror with a comb case under it. The roller towel hung on the back of the door. It was some big room, I'd say, and it probably took years to collect all those things. Aunt Alice was the baby and remembered all the last things there, but she did not remember the early years when they had less. They lived and worked in the kitchen. It was a hive of activity. There was no evening meetings, no evening activity of the ward or community. 
After supper, they all congregated in the kitchen until bedtime. On a winter evening, Grandmother got out her wool and cards for it, while the others got their sewing and knitting, and Grandfather got out his cobbling work. The wool Grandmother used was raised right there in her own yard or orchard on nice, clean sheep. It wasn't dirty like the wool that Mother used to get from the herd. Grandmother's always carded it into bats before she washed it. Freshly cut, soft, oily wool was easier to card than that which had been washed and snarled up a lot. She would spread it out on the big hearth in front of the fire and get it nice and warm and card great piles of it. On another evening, maybe the next one, she'd get out her spinning wheel and spin it into yarn. Once again, she would warm it nice and warm before she'd spin the bats into yarn. That made it easier, and she could make much smoother and finer yarn that way. Then she wove it onto her loom into cloth or rugs or carpets. The loom that Grandmother used was a collapsible one that they could set up when needed and take down and put away when she was doing other things. Aunt Luella doesn't remember when her mother wove fabrics. Very early in the settlement of Dixie, they started the woolen mills down in a little town near St. George called Washington. They took their wool to this mill and exchanged it for Lindsay Woolsey woven there. The warp was cotton and the woof was wool, making it half cotton and half wool. The Lindsay Woolsey, I remember, was gray, but Aunt Lou said they used to get it in white for sheets that were very warm and cozy in the winter, and there was no heat in the house except the fireplace. Father William A. Red used to haul loads of wool down there for his father. Always a part of their traveling equipment was the grub box, a permanent good-sized box with a hinge lid and a fastener to keep it shut. Father went out on the north side of the woolen mills in its shade to eat his lunch, Some of the girls, workers in the factory, saw this handsome young man through the window and began kidding him. Why eat out there alone? Invite us out. We'd like to taste some of that good-looking food. It smells good, too. Toss us up a piece. On they teased. When he had stood enough, he replied, When I've had all I want and have fed my dog, I'll give you some. They slammed the window down, and he wasn't bothered anymore. Grandfather had his work in the evening, too. He made all the shoes for the family for many years. He made them from scratch, which indicates that he took the hides of animals, planned and cut out the shoes, and sold them. John D. Lee also made shoes for his family. So this was a mutual activity, along with all the other work of farming. Anything they ever had to spare, they could take down to sell at Silver Reef, a mining town. There they could sell anything they had. When they took their surplus to Silver Reef, they stopped at the woolen mills in Washington and brought back Lindsay Woolsey and other bolts of material, which grandmother made into clothing. They also brought back leathers, cowhides for soles, and calfskins for the tops. Later, Grandmother had a little how sewing machine with which she could sew the tops together, and the vamp, and up the back. Then Grandfather put them on the last and tacked them together. When Father was small, he tried to make us a baby shoe out of little scraps that Grandpa wouldn't use. When he tried to tack the top and sew together, the tacks went into the last, which was only wooden. He pulled it crooked in trying to get it off the last, Disgustedly, he threw it out into the bushes. Aunt Louisa had been watching him, and she went out to retrieve the shoe. "'What are you going to do with that?' he demanded. "'I'm going to keep it and give it to your wife,' she explained. "'No, you're not either,' he yelled. Many times thereafter, he said he had gone all through her part of the house, and she wasn't there, but he couldn't find the shoe. Mother prized it when she got it. As pioneers, Lemuel and Keziah Jane Red did everything they could for themselves and their family— everything necessary for them and their welfare. On one of his trips to Salt Lake City, he bought a shoemaker's kit. This kit consisted of a box with a hinged lid. Across the back of it was a row of little compartments filled with little wooden pegs. 
as they didn't use metal tacks then. They used an awl to poke holes in the leather to put these pegs through. The kit also contained a hammer and four wooden lasts, a small, two middle-sized, and a large. That was as near to fitting a shoe as they could get. Father said that when they were small, they were the only children in town who had shoes when it snowed. The others came to school with wet, cold feet and had to warm them at the little heater in the middle of the room. They sat barefooted all day. They'd scrape the hot coals out on the hearth to warm them. Of course, none of the other children came as far to school as did the red children. These shoes of the red children were precious, and when it was wet and sloppy, Aunt Missia said her mother and Aunt Kizzy would wrap their feet in gunny sacks and tie them on. When they arrived at school, they'd take the sacks off and put their shoes on. They would then put the gunny sacks under the stove to dry during the day. Often they weren't dry when school was out. But they tied them on anyway and carried their their shoes home. But they tied them on anyway and carried their shoes home. Always when the weather was warm, they went barefooted. These shoes were made of hides. They bought from Salt Lake City or Washington or tanned at home. They greased them up a lot with tallow to make them wear well. Father William told of the early days when he was very young. They all danced barefooted and barred those who wore shoes so they couldn't stomp on the bare toes of the others. The floors weren't very smooth, and they sometimes got slivers in their feet. When that happened, some swain who had a pocket knife pulled out his knife, opened it, and the foot with the sliver was held up so he could pull it out and the dance could continue. Why let a little sliver stop the fun? Those early dancers didn't. With so many children in the family, it was a problem to get shoes made for all of them very often. When a child grew out of a pair, they were passed down to the next in size. Mother said their shoes were the same shape on both sides, no left and no right. To make the shoes last longer, the children were told to alternate them on their feet. If they wore one on the left foot one day, they were to wear it on the right foot the next day. If the children ran the shoes over on one side, sometimes the alternating would help, but not with mother. She ran hers both the same way, to the right. At first on this new farm from Lee, they cleared the land of rocks, and of these rocks they built their fences. They used no cement. Probably they didn't have any. They may have used mud. If they used mud, the rains washed it from the rocks and the fences, like the chimney, fell down into heaps. Later a fence of barbed wire was put along the side of the old rock fence. These old rock heaps were ideal habitats for snakes, and as youngsters we always carried a good, substantial stick which to kill such snakes if we ever saw one, and we often did such. These rock walls were around the frame yard, the pond, the orchard, and in fact all the separate parts of the farm. The pond was a place of interest to us children. We often hiked up to it. One end was shallow, and the bottom slanted towards the south where we used to think it was very deep. I can remember when the pond was used for baptism, but this was discontinued before I was baptized. The spring still feeds it, but it is filled with slime and water weeds of all kinds, as bulrushes and cattails. The house they lived in was started by John D. Lee. It had four brick walls around the main part, and the partitions were of lumber or studdings. There were two main rooms on the lower floor, with a little bedroom between them on grandmother's side of the house. There was a fireplace and chimney in grandmother's end of the house, and I suppose one in Aunt Louisa's end also. The house was long, with gables on the north and south ends. There were three rooms upstairs with a stairway up to the middle room. They called the dark room, because it had no window, just two little panes of glass in the roof. The walls upstairs and a few downstairs were finished with the plaster of fabric on only one side. The studding showed on the other side. This was true of the dark room. Aunt Della went up there once to take a bath. She went to sit on a chair, and there was a big blow snake coiled on it. She screamed for help, and her brother William came to the rescue. 
The snake had started to go down between the two studdings. William grabbed it by the tail and pulled. The snake blew up and braced itself. William wrapped the snake around his hand, got a better hold, and pulled harder. He pulled the snake in two, and they never did find the head end. The north room had a door that opened onto a little catwalk over to the long upper porch as long as the house. Aunt Sussie said that the upper porch was never used. So far as she knew, it was for decoration only, but the kids used to take their bedding out on the lower porch to sleep sometimes in the summer. The kitchen or kitchens, surely, there was one at each end of the house, were in a long, wide lean-to attached to the main part of the house. Out back of the kitchens, the back porches, and another long lean-to attached to the kitchen lean-to. Grandmother was the disciplinarian of the family. Uncle Lem said he lived in the family home 24 years before he married, and he never heard his pap or his mother speak sharply to each other. Grandpa once asked Louie to bring another stick of wood for the fire. She didn't hear him properly and asked, What? Her mother said, Is that a way to speak to your father? He is a gentleman, and you must address him as such. How should I speak to him? asked Louie. Sir is the proper word, she was told. Grandmother always insisted that they do as their father said on every occasion. The cellar was under the house on the south end. It was merely a hole in the ground with a dirt floor. I don't know whether the walls of dirt or a brick or rocks. There were steps leading down to it from the south at right angles to the south wall. These steps were covered by a big slanting door that had to be lifted up. It was the kind of door kids liked to slide down to. There was also an upright door at the bottom opening toward the inside. Somebody left the door open once, and old Bossy went down to investigate. In her movements about, she pushed the door shut. Aunt Vila was sent down for something, but couldn't get in. She could see just a little bit of cow. She dashed upstairs, shouting that she couldn't get in. The cellar was full of cows. She said she actually thought it was, too. They used a lot of ingenuity in that cellar. They kept their milk down there, for instance. And if they had merely stacked shelves as in other places, mice could get into the milk. Instead, they suspended the shelves with four wires, one from each of the four corners. Several shelves, one above the other, were on these same wires. They figured the milk would be safe, but one day the cream came up missing. Grandmother asked her children who had skimmed the milk. They all denied having done such. Again it was missed again, they denied it, and again and again. Then one day, Grandmother went down for something. There was a big blow snake with its mouth open going around the pan and lapping off the cream. Before they got the organ, that corner of the house held the loom. Aunt Lou said by that time she was old enough to remember her mother wove only carpets. Then she would put the loom away. But that time, too, she only spun coarse yarn for rugs. The spinning wheel could be moved from room to room as needed. Between mills, the table was shortened against the wall, and other activities were carried on in the space. Each of the children had regular responsibilities. Aunt Lou's job was to fill the chip basket with good, clean chips, The basket was of Indian make and held the chips ready for the early fire making in the morning. She had to fill it at night. One night they had company, and they told such interesting stories that Aunt Lou didn't want to miss them. She delayed until it was dark, but she had to get the chips anyway. Her mother held a candle for her, but the flickering was about as bad as nothing. She could see all kinds of wild animals and other dangers out there in the dark. She got her chips early after that experience. Aunt Ellen had to shut up the chicken coop very carefully, so that no coyote could get in and take a chicken or two. Aunt Velo had to carry the water up from the spring down by the creek. She told me she once had to go and get it after they were ready to sit down to a meal. She was so mad that she put her foot in the bucket. Aunt Alice was assigned to bring up the potatoes from the basement. Their parents wouldn't remind the children of their duties. 
They were to do the chores without being reminded. These were their nightly chores. Everything had to be ready for Grandmother to prepare breakfast early in the morning. I asked Aunt Alice if they often had cornmeal mush for breakfast, and she said they never had mush for breakfast. For breakfast, they always had potatoes and gravy with eggs, bacon or sausage, and always with hot bread and butter. Breakfast was the big meal of the day to start out the day's work on the farm. They had cornmeal mush for supper. Each was given a bowl of milk, and the mush was dipped into it, as much as each wanted. Dinner was about the same as breakfast, potatoes and gravy and meat of some kind, mainly pork. A special dish was a quail pie. When grandmother could get half a dozen quail, she would make a big pie in a milk pan. And it was super duper.